The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, startups, markets, and the economy. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If I'm a company, yeah, I'm absolutely going to do that. My mission is to profit, right? Like my social duty, according to Milton Friedman, is to profit. Therefore, I must raise prices to the maximum that the market will bear. If I'm seeing all of my competitors or all of you know these parallel industries that have those supply shocks, but I don't, I'm still, I'm, why not? I'm still going to try it and see what I can get away with. And I think that is, to some degree, something that you've seen in the past couple years. NPR Planet Money's Mary Childs on inflation, recognizing it profiting from it, living with it, hedging against it, and top of mind right now for the Federal Reserve, fighting it. Do we have to sink this economy in order to rescue it from the big eye? Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me yet again, friend of the show, Mary Child. She is co-host of NPR's Planet Money and author of the bestseller, The Bond King. We had Mary live at the University of Richmond a year ago in March of 2022 to discuss this book and the broader fixed income markets. I mean, if you could find one person on the planet who could put together a spellbinding kind of edge of your seat drama about the stayed fixed income market, it's Mary Childs. How are you? (laughs) I'm wonderful hearing all that. Thank you, Robin. So kind. And I promise to come back to you because you are that rare person. Look, I could also get a ruddy-faced person in a suit (laughs) on a bond desk on Wall Street somewhere to talk about the Fed and interest rates and the yield curve and everything else, but you actually put it in humanistic terms. And what I love for you and our listeners is you make it very easy to understand. So here we are one year later from that packed event that we had at the University of Richmond where we promised to come back and say, Mary, if and when inflation does get out of control, which would be the first time in our lifetimes, I mean, this hasn't happened in 40 years, we were definitely going to have you back on the show. (laughs) What do you make of all this, especially now with Fed Chair Jerome Powell on Congress taking testimony today and saying that this is actually worse than we thought it was and we're going to have to raise rates probably higher and for longer than we had imagined. Yeah, I mean, you don't love to see it, right? We we spoke last year about how radical it was to see inflation back. And like you're saying, for the first time really in, in my career, in my lifetime, it kind of was this thing that I dismissed as right. like an antiquated <laughs> economic theorem. Like we don't have to worry about that anymore. In fact, we did a show at Planet Money basically about how the world maybe had changed. And we did end up sort of top ticking that change, unfortunately for us. But, you know, it seemed that way at the time. But inflation is definitely back and it's a real bummer. I mean, we're all feeling it. You feel it at the grocery store. You feel it when you're trying to do any kind of home improvement or get daycare or anything at all in our economy, local, national, global. So I think, you know, Jerome Powell obviously has to keep a very close eye on this. The Fed is pretty data dependent. And they were looking at the signs of this economy not responding strongly enough to their attempts to cool inflation by raising interest rates. 
So here we are after all the rate hikes. I think last year, 2022, saw more rate hikes and in more chunky increments than any time we had seen since Paul Volcker mm-hmm. broke the back of rest inflation in by yeah. sending it, rest in peace, by sending it into, sending the economy into recession. He was the Fed chair in the early 80s. Even after that, we had a January jobs report. This is a thing that I don't think a lot of listeners can understand. More than a half a million jobs were created in January, and that's great news if you're the White House, but not if you're Jerome Powell and right. you want to kind of uh, bring down the FOMO, if you will. Absolutely. And I think it points to this extremely rough and just awful trade-off that we end up looking at, which is we can have inflation and a medium good jobs environment. But if we if we have a great labor market, if, if things are really tight and workers are really getting jobs, inflation is likely to be pretty hot. And that's bad. So Powell actually raised this interesting question. You know, will working people be better off if we just walk away from our jobs and inflation remains five and six percent? Like, are workers better off if you have this, you know, low unemployment rate, but high inflation? And that relationship is pretty robust. It's there. And that's just bad news. Like, that's just a sad thing in in our economy. Like, surely there's a better way, but we just haven't found it yet. The way to get rid of inflation is to hurt the job market. So why does it come to that? I mean, this has been the Fed's mandate, the Federal Reserve, largely its modern mandate for the past 100 years, but it has new... Look, if we step back from this, it has a dual role, right? Mm -hmm. Full employment and to keep moderate prices. It has more than full employment right now, arguably, with Mm -hmm. the unemployment rate at about 3.5%. But inflation is out of whack. It would rather have inflation at 2%. Remember 2% inflation? Oh my gosh, good old days, am I right? (laughs) Good old days. But now to, to choke that inflation, it has been raising... Last year, it's been done by three quarter points, by quarter points, by half points. And we are now close to 5% interest rates. Can you step back and explain why that interest rate is so vital globally into everybody's pocketbooks? Oh, absolutely. So there are a number of ways that higher interest rates filter through the economy. And one of the primary, like the easiest way to think about it is if you're trying to buy a house. If you're thinking about moving and you're thinking about selling your house and buying a new one and interest rates are at 2% or at zero or whatever, substantially zero as they were so recently, you're like, meh, what's the problem? I'll just, you know, I'll buy a new house. I'll refi if rates go lower, which they always do. And things are jim dandy. And now, you know, if you're looking at the cost, the monthly cost of your new house that you want to buy with that higher interest rate, you're paying out, you know, hundreds and hundreds more dollars every single month. And so the house that you can buy is hundreds of thousands of dollars less expensive than the one you just could buy last year. So it's this really, really sensitive part of the market. And that's kind of the easiest, one of the easiest transmission mechanisms where prices respond really quickly. Buyers respond really quickly to changes in interest rates because it really has that substantial impact. It's really where rubber meets road there. But put capital investments or large purchases aside, why would it defer me, defray me from staying at a hotel or going to my favorite restaurant? That's so well put. So if you're kind of tightening the belt, your your credit card is suddenly charging you higher rates, your HELOC is more expensive, you know, any kind of home equity. Your home equity line of credit. Exactly. Any of these types of borrowings are getting more expensive. If you have an adjustable rate mortgage, it's gotten more expensive. So, you know, you're going to start feeling that squeeze of higher interest rates as it filters through to you. And therefore, you're going to say, you know what? I think I need to tighten the belt a little bit. I think I need to to really cut back. I'm spending out more money on my rent. I'm spending more money on my daycares, on all of these different things. And sorry to keep coming back to the daycare. You can tell what stresses me out. But but you start to to look at your finances more critically and cut back on these discretionary purchases. And that's really what the Fed wants to see. They want to see cooling in all of this consumer spending because that's part of what's creating this hot inflationary environment. 
What about the flip side, Mary, as a saver? This is something that, again, savers have gotten know, right? short shrift uh, in, in this century, at least, where many of the years have been at zero or close to zero interest rate policy. Now, as a saver, you could put your money in a CD and get solid. There are CDs offering three and a half, four percent. There are short term. Can you explain the short end of the bond curve where right now you're close to what, five, five and a half percent? Yeah. Is that the other thing that people that do have money wouldn't put it to use if they could park it in exactly. something that's paying them something nice? Exactly. We haven't seen rates on, you know, I as a as a consumer, as a potential saver. When I'm making that trade-off decision about what to do with my little chunk of change, am I going to go to a restaurant? Am I going to save this and use it later? You know, one of the ways to cool spending in the economy is to you kind of get to allocate that money to enforce a change in that decision when I'm trying to balance that. If I'm like, oh, I can make 5% in a CD or I can eat like spaghetti, I'm going to make 5%. Like I kind of want that 5%. So it's wild how responsive we can be to these incentives, and that will cool my discretionary spending because I'm so excited about getting that 5% for the first time in a bajillion years, at least definitely for the first time in my lifetime. And that is a really effective mechanism to, to help kind of chill the consumer spending effect. Now, you studied the early 80s and Paul Volcker. You were quite the reporter. I, you know, <laughs> we worked, we crossed paths at Bloomberg. We did. You were at Barron's. You were at the Financial Times. Correct. The last time inflation was this bad, I'm under the impression that the Federal Reserve under Paul Volcker in the early 80s had to take rates to the mid-teens. Yeah. You know, by comparison, they're right below 5% right now. That truly, I mean, you're talking about, you said eating spaghetti versus 5%, eating spaghetti versus 15%. <laughs> really nice spaghetti, I want to be clear. If you could get a 15% CD at a savings and loan back then. And, and you know what? I'm going to share that anecdote. one. Last. If you know Robin Farzad, you know I'm going to talk about my dear dad taking me to the Savings Bank of North Miami Beach and saying, here's that toaster son and that passbook savings account, $500 that you saved up in your 15% you know, government protected Amazing. CD. We are nowhere near that to kind of mop up. And by the way, that was simultaneous to the fact that everybody's saying death of equities and mm -hmm. real estate. I mean, who's going to take out a 19 or 20% mortgage or go take a flyer on the stock market when the government is giving you a, a chance to mop right. up your money at 15%? Right. And it's funny you, you, you tell that story. There are so many major investors that have the exact same story. I'm thinking of Robert Smith at Vista Equity Partners. I'm thinking of Michael Hinsey at CQS. Like there are a lot of major names in the investing space that had the exact same experience, and that's how they learned to love investing. And then you have people who came up in this in this you know post crisis era where it's like you're getting zero percent. People are expected like all of the rules seem to not apply for that kind of 10, 12 year period, and it was really weird. So in a way, we're going back to something normal. We're going back to a world in which maybe we don't understand how the rules work together, how all of the laws interact, you know, what the relationship between inflation expectations and, you know, wages and, and employment might be. But we at least, you know, it's, it's like the law of gravity came back all of a sudden. What was, you know, to throw out another hoary metaphor here, what was the cliche? What was the straw that broke the camel's back in this case? Oh, gosh. That after years of you and I being warned every year at the beginning of every investing outlook, every new interest rate cycle, that this is it. Yeah. This is, you know, it's like Stanford oh, and Sons. This is it. This is a big one. It can't keep and going inflation, like this forever. Yeah. <laughs> it can't keep the easy money has been made, you know, but it, it wasn't it. it and wasn't then over it. time, you would say, well, if that wasn't it, maybe we can flirt with other more dangerous policies, just as quantitative easing, or we can conjure money 
or we can have new age thinking about monetary policy. But this time, it seems like it was it. Can you can you look back maybe three years and tell us what happened so differently in the pandemic that finally unleashed capital I inflation? Absolutely. Well, there are a number of things that happened all at once, and it's really unfortunate for like political narratives because they're enmeshed and each is true, I think, to some degree. And, and we're kind of everybody's arguing over what degree that might be. So on the one hand, you have a shock with the pandemic and the government response that this time we decided to err on the side of you know, generosity of bypassing an, an economic recession that is, you know, protracted and difficult and that harms the labor market for years and years and is hard to come out of like we did after the Great Recession of 2008 and 9. And so this time we erred on the side of, OK, let's send money. Let's just react. Let's do stimulus. And the stimulus was enormous. So right, that was on right. the one hand, you do have this change in the money supply. You have stimulus checks that went to people. You have businesses that didn't have to fire their workers because the paycheck. So there were many, many programs that all kind of worked so together. Stop. Stop for a second. In addition to the Federal Reserve, which is its own wing, semi-independent wing of the mm-hmm, government, mm-hmm. taking interest rates to independent, zero. Independent, so Robin, this, please. Thank you. Independent. <laughs> the, spigots, the spigot is at full blast. You have Absolutely. bipartisanship under the crisis mode, the Trump presidency initially, with you know some element of bipartisanship. We don't have private business interruption insurance. So they unleashed PPP, mm-hmm. pay, Payroll Protection Program, which if you promise to not- I think you payroll, yes. Yes, but if you promise to not fire your staff, we will give you effectively we will forgive a grant. this loan, right? Yeah. So that happens simultaneously. So there are two massive spigots into mm-hmm. the economy. And then so that's on the one side, that's on the kind of supply money supply side if you will. And then on the demand side, we were all stuck at home, no longer going out for our very fancy spaghetti, and we're like you know, twiddling our thumbs and all of a sudden everyone's buying a new couch because they're just staring at their couch all day and every everyone decides to buy new dumbbells to do weights at home. And we just started buying so much stuff, just tons and tons of things. And, you know, it created and also encountered, thanks to COVID, a lot of different snarls along the way in that supply chain. So when we order something from, you know, China, it would get stuck in a port that was shut down due to COVID. And then that boat would finally make it over to the port of L.A. And then the port of L.A. was just backlogged and couldn't get through all of the various boats that had, you know, variations of the same problem. And there were just that many boats, so many more boats than usual. I should say ships. People get really sensitive about that. So, you know, it's it's a many-pronged thing. It all happened at once. And again, it's hard to detangle what the dominant thing was, what the exact catalyst was. I think the most fair answer is that they all were present and they all, to some degree, helped create the situation. And here we are, you know, workers had better savings, but they, that has largely burned off. And, you know, we've seen a, a remarkably robust labor market for a variety of reasons that, again, are very complicated and hard to detangle. But that's kind of what the Fed is worried about is like, why is the labor market still so strong? Like, shouldn't it be responding to all these rate hikes that we've been throwing at it? Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are joined by my friend, Mary Child. She is one of the hosts of NPR's Planet Money and author of one of my favorite books. And we had her live at the University of Richmond last year, The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. You actually managed to make a a cliffhanging, spellbinding book about the bond market, about fixed income. <laughs> and I think I called that episode Broken Income. You, you did. Know? It was really good. That was a really <laughs> With good With a flourish joke, yeah. of melodrama. And one of the reasons why I love having Mary on, as opposed, again, to a ruddy-faced sell-side person in a tie, is that she can humanize the bond market. You can explain it from mom and pop and John Q 
uh, investor, milk toaster, whoever the heck listens to full disclosure, which is substantially my mother and my uncle, let's be honest. But Mary, what is it about those workers? If all of that fiscal stimulus has since been whizzed down, if interest rates are higher, if expenses are higher, why is it that every restaurant owner you and I know, every gosh, hospitality manager is having the hardest time, even with $15 wages, $17 an hour wages, bringing people back to work. How are people making ends meet? It used to be that these service sector workers needed those jobs, that you could count on them. And now that that's just not there anymore. Yeah. There are so many potential answers to this. So I'm going to say some things that are going to be wrong, but maybe I'll come back in a year and we'll talk about how I was wrong. There are a lot of things happening. A lot of people just left the labor market. A lot of people, a lot of people retired. We're seeing the boomers exit the job market. And that is an enormous generation, as we know. So that's just a straight up like a physical thing that the demographics say that there's a giant generation exiting and the one coming into the labor market, Gen Z, just not as big. So that's just you know, that's a law of nature to some degree. There's, you know, we've had an enormous, I'm going to go back to daycare again. I'm so sorry, but women are not returning to the workforce in the same numbers as men. And part of that is because we have an unequal distribution of home labor, of domestic labor in this country. And women are more predominantly burdened with the, or gifted with the, <laughs> with the childcare and allocating t- for childcare in the labor market. Part of that is due to women being paid less in general. So like, it's easier to say, oh, I'll just step back if daycare is too expensive. That that trade-off becomes more acute. So a lot mm-hmm. of daycares were small businesses that closed in the pandemic and for, you know, for health reasons, but also for economic reasons. It's kind of a broken market. And there is a recent Planet Money on the subject that I can recommend. But, you know, that's a major reason. Means, yeah. <laughs> Shameless plug for my, my colleague, Sarah. But there, you know, there's also kind of a overarching productivity paradox where I think there have been structural changes in the labor market that some of our models just don't account for and don't know how to, you know, rebalance in the in the face of like, we just don't work in the way that we used to. Technology has obviously had massive impacts. You know, we have incoming robots that require babysitting, but just lessen the number of hands on a factory floor. Or, you know, I'm working from home. I don't go to the office anymore. I'm not buying things in Midtown. All of these different ways in which we have changed the nature of work. And we just aren't used to them yet. And we don't know how to explain them But Mary, you've always seen the stats. And at last clock to 2022, I mean, it's almost become cliche again. The number of Americans living paycheck to paycheck jumped to 64% as of December 2022. How do you make the ends meet? After all the soft stuff, and listen, I've thought about my life. I want to do something entrepreneurial. You have immediate bills. You have to make rent. No, I know. You have to make the car payment, especially if interest rates are going up. You would think that would induce people to... But again, this is the this is the, the conundrum. Yes, We're exactly. three and a half percent unemployment, and you cannot, you know, you and I went to Westwood Diner here. It's owned by another uh, guest of the show, Faisal Aridi, the Lebanese immigrant owner of the famous Westwood Diner in Richmond. Is he says I cannot even pay people to show up to the interviews, much less take the jobs, even if I promise them twenty twenty five dollars an hour after tips and everything. It's like pushing on a string. Yeah. At this point, it's and on the other there. end yeah. of it, he's getting hit on egg costs because of. The avian flu. Right. And you well, used to be able to count on some modicum of immigration coming that's in. Or a, that's the point I wanted to raise. So this kind of goes against economic thought. And, and that's why this is one of the ones where I think I might be for sure wrong. But the kind of canonical economic thought or what was established in the research in the 90s was that immigration should not have a real effect on 
prices in an area because it kind of comes with its own supply and demand. It's its own little modular. You pop it in, you pop it out. It doesn't really affect, um, you know, it affects it. It, it, it counts for for growth and for, you know, an increase in, in economic productivity and economic activity, but it's not, it's, it doesn't like depress wages or whatever. You know, this is something that people talked a lot about in the 90s. And this was, you know, the famous career card stuff. And I think that's a, that's a pair of um, economists that did a lot of research into this and found that, oh, there's not this huge impact. And so the logical kind of intuition is that, oh, we haven't had immigration policies that allow for this part of the workforce to be robust and as, you know, well populated as it has been in the past. But the economic kind of findings, the empirical findings would suggest that, no, that that's just not how it works. So I'm stumped on that one. I don't know, because my instinct would say the same thing. Like, we don't have the people who come in, like transient workers, people who come for seasonal work, people who come for, you know, to, to get those $15 an hour jobs and, and work at Westwood Pharmacy. You know, it does seem like those folks just aren't there as much. But again, that kind of is not what the economic lessons would tell you. So question mark, question mark for me. Mary, hold my hand and tell me how certain inflation would come back. I understand if you take out exogenous things or miscellaneous secular shocks such as avian flu and the culling of tens of millions of hens and birds. And, you know, we've had everybody, as you know, and and Planet Money has done this and your other colleague, Stacey Vanek Smith, did an amazing piece on eggs Mm -hmm. and egg inflation. But I, I, I know this from you know, having completely taken over grocery juries during much of the <laughs> pandemic, I used to clock a dozen eggs at Aldi or at Kroger at about 80, 88 cents, a dollar max. Now they're easily $5 because of the supply shock of avian flu. Yeah. Uh, but then I see other mundane things. I like to buy the big Starbucks cold brew in the juice aisle uh-huh. okay. uh, at the grocery store. Love and it was always you. clocked at four ninety nine. Now it is routinely six ninety nine. Now I understand there were supply shocks. The price of coffee has always been volatile. But you also probably had companies that used the cloud cover of higher headline inflation to sneak through a nice chunky, you know, 40% price hike on their products. And so how does the Fed hiking arrest that? You know, they always tell us that prices are sticky upwards. So sending the economy into tailspin, would it force the likes of, say, a Starbucks to bring prices down? Well, you really don't want to see that. That's disinflation and that gets, um, or sorry, that's deflation and that gets bad. Um, so so we the Fed is trying to avoid that with all its might. Um, but I do think this is actually the kind of a huge debate in economics right now, whether or not, you know, companies are trying or are basically price gouging. And there was a recent indicator on this just to plug Planet Money yet again. But basically, the idea of price gouging isn't really an economic term for one. But it's also just like, you know, it's what the market will bear. So economics kind of is like, this isn't a thing that we acknowledge, because if you'll pay it, that's the price, right? That if if consumers are willing to pay it, then that's what makes prices go up. And it's not like, you're not being forced in the economic kind of thinking. But I will say, I do think that there is this, you know, there's a lot of talk about if you listen to earnings calls, it sounds like companies are really taking advantage, are kind of bragging to their investors, not to you and me, the consumers, but to their investors, their shareholders, their stakeholders, and saying, oh, we're doing a great job at raising these prices, at getting price hikes through. We're really excited about how much we're making in profit here. And I mean, that does seem to bear out. So, you know, People are kind of looking into this in in research now and saying, you know, what can firms hike prices? Can firms 
push these prices through even in an emergency and and when things are dire and it may not, you know, in, in a situation like a pandemic. So I think it does seem like they're, if I'm a company, yeah, I'm absolutely going to do that. My my mission is to profit, right? Like my, my social duty, according to Milton Friedman, is to profit. Therefore, I must raise prices to the maximum that I can, that the market will bear. And if I'm seeing all of these, all of my competitors or all of, you know, these parallel industries that have those supply cho- shocks, but I don't, I'm still why not? I'm still going to try it and see what I can get away with. And I think that is, to some degree, something that you've seen in the past couple of years. An interesting footnote on that, while we're talking about Starbucks, which has been so much of an indicator species in this, because huh. when the pandemic broke, we had an episode out of this. They were the first ones to refuse to pay their rent as a class A you know, strip mall tenant that everybody depended on them right, as being yeah. the peerless opportunity. They were the first ones to contort to become all drive through. You started to see 20 cars sometimes pile up outside of a Starbucks. You could go to the one by you on Huguenot and Robius and it's always been crazy. <laughs> and three, they've been dealing with labor issues, right. pay issues, tip parity. And I also noticed that in the you know, you guys have done several things on shrinkflation, but mm. look how you get hit by Starbucks. In addition to, say, a Starbucks shrinking the size maybe of your median ham and Swiss croissant <laughs> and taking up the price of coffee, which has been higher than the rise of inflation over kind of the modern history of, of Starbucks. They do things such as the rewards program, mm-hmm. which used to be 50 points for a free cup of coffee, just very quietly now is 100 points for a free cup of coffee. I had so, not noticed, Robin. I am a no, Starbucks, like, you know, member person or whatever, and I had literally not noticed that. Thank and that this just happened at the beginning of February, and this is how you rest the bone from the dog's mouth. And that's how inflation is hitting you at kind of 360 degrees. And Absolutely. unless unless and until you could go back to your boss and say, hey, I need a 20% raise, you're paying for it out of something else. Exactly, exactly. And people are feeling the squeeze. And eventually, you know, that's supposed to stop showing up in la- in wage inflation in, in the labor market negotiations of you going to your boss, eventually your boss is going to say no, and the labor market will cool a little bit, and you'll just stop spending less. You'll just get fewer Starbucks coffees. You'll make more at home, ostensibly. Full disclosure, please stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple Podcasts, the link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. A shout out to our radio listeners across the great Commonwealth of Virginia on WVTF's Radio IQ News. We are down in Asheville, North Carolina. We are in Ventura County, California. Holler if you too would like us on your air. If you are just joining us, my guest is the inimitable Mary Child. She's one of the hosts of NPR's Planet Money, author of the book that hit in 2022, The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It. And yes, let me break the fourth wall. One of my favorite business journalists. She humanizes oh. She humanizes the complexity of the multi-trillion dollar bond market, which we're talking about today because Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve Chief, was on Capitol Hill testifying that saying, let me quote, the latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated. If the totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we would be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. They're so gnomic the way they talk. Hmm. Uh, Mary, what is the objective here? I mean, you in a soft landing world, you would hurt the economy as much as possible, impregnate it with so many interest rate hikes, but not send it into recession. I mean, what is what yeah, is the art form the goal. here? That's it's a it's a real tightrope walk. It's threading a needle. It's all of these things. It's very difficult to do because the economy is sensitive to interest rates, but also, you know, you can't control 
everything. And the idea that we actually can understand how interest rates do filter through to the economy and and kind of which lever to pull when, like it's a little bit of an illusion, right? What kind of control do we really have? It's an aggregate. Everyone is acting and and not rationally. All we are is dust in the wind. Mary exactly Charles, what I'm what saying. saying. Thank yeah, you. Yes. But it is this this kind of, you know, the, the markets were not expecting this. The, the Fed went from kind of looking at, oh, we're at 75, 75, 75 basis point hikes down to 50, down to 25. It's looking good. We're in the clear. We've defeated inflation. Oh, no. Like the data that came in in January and February just went the wrong way. And the Fed has to react to that. And I guess the markets were hoping that that wouldn't happen, that we could just like pretend that it was okay. But, you know, the Fed only has power insofar as it has credibility. So had they done anything else today, had they, you know, made any other remarks that weren't this hawkish, I struggle to imagine that being a long-term good thing, right? Like this is, as they always say, it's like, you know, tough medicine or whatever. But it is the kind of thing where the Fed must retain that credibility in order to maintain the dollar's credibility, in order to maintain market stability and price, in order for for it to have that control that that does anything at all when they change interest rates. So, you know, it's not great. It's not fun. But uh, but having that responsiveness to data, I think, is super critical. And having a really kind of hardcore, annoyingly hawkish Fed is, I guess, a good thing. I always struggle with Fed credibility know, because, right? like, look at the financial crisis. If you and I went back and looked at the Federal Reserve minutes in early 2007, the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee, which sets interest rate policy, was almost pretty oblivious to this mortgage meltdown and this systemic subprime crisis, which subsumed the global economy. They said, we're keeping our eyes on soft pockets of the real estate market, but we don't see anything in the offing. I think interest rates were pretty high. They were going the course. And then suddenly when everything fell apart, they took interest rates to zero. Of course, nobody, including the Fed, could not see this pandemic, this exogenous shock, this asteroid hitting the planet in the spring of 2020. But um, how does he have credibility, he and his team, in that they kept saying that inflation was transitory? And they changed that line about a year ago. And they're like, well, Well, we're hiking rates now eight times by three quarter point increments. And we thought it would be over, but there's still more to go. There's still more to go. It's it's crying wolf in the other direction. I know. But like, can you imagine a world in which they were like, oh, seems really bad. We're going to have to really act fast. This is worse than we thought. Like, you don't want the Fed saying that. Fed speak is but one of their many tools. And you have to think about the ways in which they use it and what their incentives are. They want to quell concern. They want to reassure the market. They can't really tell you how bad things really might get because then you're going to freak out like all of us would freak out. So I think part of it is expectation management and, you know, being a, a little bit of a therapist to the economy or maybe a parent figure and just being like, you know what, I always see some softness. We see some pockets that aren't great. But if we just work off the housing overhang, if we just sell a couple more houses, we'll be fine. Like, it'll be okay. And I think that, I don't know, I don't really want the alternative of like a panicky, emotionally charged, like freaky out fed. I don't think I, I don't want that personally. Why can't he has moral suasion, uh, Jerome Powell? So if housing, for example, is problematic, and this is something you're intimately familiar with in daycare, you know, you're starting a young family. <laughs> why could he doesn't have a direct lever to say, "Oh, well, I want to hike rates on just mortgages, but not everything else, and right. the cars and, and credit cards and everything." But he could browbeat housing. He could come out in an anomic way, testify in front of Congress, and say, "I mean, the gains in real estate have been hyperbolic, and by no stretch of standard deviations, or however they put it." Uh-huh. But again, you're asked about this a lot. They have blunt tools and blunt, blunt tools, instruments right. a good hundred years into the modern Federal Reserve. 
I mean, it's this idea that the Fed shouldn't be picking winners in the market. I think part of it is that you don't want the Fed to necessarily be talking about the rates of junk bonds versus German bonds. Like that, there's just like a weirdness there where they're supposed to be almost above it and godlike, you know, they're on their mountain and they look at the data from afar and the 30,000 foot view, but they don't really come meddle in the minutia that much. They watch it, they don't meddle. And I think that, you know, there's a beauty to the blunt instruments in that way. Of course, that has sort of changed in the past decade plus with the interventions in various markets. But I do think that there's this that's a kind of existential debate within the Fed of how much they should intervene and pick winners and pick markets versus, you know, the subprime market of, you know, the mortgage sector versus junk bonds. Like, why should they be making that call? Why and how do they make that call? Like, they're not an elected body. I don't get to pick Jerome Powell. I don't get any say there. So there's something messed up feeling in letting the Fed make these kind of market by market choices. So I think the blunt is a little bit by design and it, it comes with all kinds of, yeah, just chaotic outcomes and and it's sensitive in one way and not in the other and maybe it's not the way you hoped and uh, it's a little a little more chaotic than perhaps is desirable but I think it might be more desirable than than the alternative. Mary a lot was written about how diversification at least briefly died in the year 2022 it was the year that nothing worked not huh. not stocks not bonds not a mixture of either know, everything right? went down gold we you know crypto didn't work it wasn't no. vindicated yeah so when you're accosted at a cocktail party and people say well what is what is antipodal what gives you ballast what gives you protection in a time of inflation CDs babe just kidding <laughs> Well, no, any Iranian relative will call me and say, you know, buy gold, or mm -hmm. you hear Indian Americans talking about their relatives in the old country about this, or buy others in Miami, the crypto bros will tell you to buy crypto, but nothing, you know, fiat currency is your enemy, but nothing is kind of vindicated right now. Inflation, is there is there a true hedge against inflation? Let's go back to the part of our conversation when I invoked Starbucks at the grocery store and corporations that have pricing power. Shouldn't the stock market theoretically be your friend at that point if they're able to increase prices and pass through shrinkflation and everything well ahead of the headline rate? Wouldn't you want to have your money in equities? I mean, yeah, if the labor market were chilled out and the Fed weren't threatening you with higher rates, yes. You know, if you could... If you could bank on those other elements holding still, I think, I think, yeah, more profits, that's great. And to some extent, I think that is true. Um, stocks are having a bad day right now. They did not like Jerome Powell's comments. But I think there is, to some degree, this idea of upselling customers, of being able to take advantage. But I think... You've seen all these laid off tech workers who buy Starbucks tech workers like there are things that are not looking good. You know, the, the specter of a recession had kind of faded in recent weeks. But I think today, not to sound alarmist, but it seems a little bit more like the Fed is like allowing that specter back in a little bit um, just to, you know, they, they need to, again, for their credibility reasons and for, you know, the weakening of the labor market that they think they need to achieve in order to cool inflation. So I think that, yeah, the no nothing works. You know, it's, it's probably best to have already bought a house. It's best to have already had a lot of money that you can now invest in in CDs and get a nice, happy 5% and sleep at night. I don't know what to tell you. It's good to have already won is, I think, what, what I would say. Here's a cosmic question, and it goes back to your book, The Bond King. And I asked one of the top executives at PIMCO for a, a, hmm. a Business Week story that I did in autumn of 2009 as markets were bottoming. 
What is normal? To the extent that PIMCO huh. coined the new normal, back then, out of the economic crisis, they said stocks weren't going to work. People are going to only going to take the most peerless government credits and, and tuck their money away and put some money in a right. mattress and everything. It turned out to be overrated. Everybody was quoting the new normal, but the stock market went on to have a spectacular decade, even after the United States had its credit rating downgraded by Standard & Poor's in 2011. We went on to do all sorts of fiscal and monetary profligacy. And it brings me back to this thing that I always think about, and I'm always accosted, and I'm sure you are too. What is normal? Can you hmm. take a time in your history or or reading economics and business and everything else where we had rates that were not too high, not too low, where we weren't in a state of war, where there wasn't the avian <laughs> flu or Ukraine no. and Vladimir Putin? What is normal? What is that baseline? I mean, I think that's like there's that joke about a spherical cow, right? When you ask, you know, uh, some academic researchers to please engineer a better way to to milk a cow, like they're like, okay, we figured it out, but it only works with a spherical cow. And you're like, that's not... To me, I think a lot about that with respect to economics, because it went through this whole phase where they were like, oh, people are rational and we all act in our self-interest. And sure. obviously we don't. Obviously, I act against my own self-interest literally all the time. I, you know, everyone is not rational. I think that's intuitive at this point. But economics really didn't want to accept that for a long time. They lived in this like very beautiful fiction land where all the theories worked and the cows were round and everything fit together nicely. And I get the appeal of that. It's very fun. The math is fun. It looks nice and the the theorems prove themselves. But that's not the world we live in. You know, we do things against our interests. Cows are shaped like cows. You go to a store and you buy the more expensive thing for no good reason or you buy the less expensive thing for no good reason. There are thousands of things coming to bear almost none of which you clock in the moment, right? So I think that the idea of normal is so unhelpful. And these kind of banal sayings, these little taglines that are supposed to encapsulate an economy or a moment in the economy, or I get it, but um, the new normal was supposed, yeah, it was it was wrong. They joked later that they would have made more money just trademarking the phrase than trading it. And that's because, you know, it wasn't what they thought it was. And it was this kind of, you know, it turned out that the Fed's kind of easy money policies did not contribute to inflation at that time. It contributed to massive asset returns. So like inflation and asset prices, which congratulations, you're an investor, Pimco, like that goes straight to you. So I think, I don't know, the the idea I've never lived, to my knowledge, I can't name a time for you when everything was hunky-dory. I mean, the 90s people point to as this great moderation and this moment in time when things were pretty steady Eddie, and history, as you recall, ended. I don't know. I think that was one, a blip, and and two, in order to understand it as a blip, you have to ignore a lot of other things that were happening to people that maybe aren't in the scope of your frame. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. You could subscribe at link fulldradio.com. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. And of course, you can DM me if you'd like to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Full Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Mary Child. She's co-host and correspondent for NPR's Planet Money, previously a reporter at Barron's, The Financial Times, and Bloomberg News, a graduate of Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. They are so proud of you. They parade you out oh, whenever please. they can because you went <laughs> off to the national renown. The oh. book, which I highly recommend, is The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It. I, you know, I want to go kind of freestyle, free skate. You're younger than me, but back in the day, we used to have roller skating rinks and the like. And oh, the DJ I went to roller skating rinks. Say, I'm not that much younger than you. 
This is freestyle, Mary Child. Okay. We're talking about the Fed. We're talking about interest rates. We're talking about the conundrum of putting capital I inflation back in the bottle. What should we be talking about in and around this or, or what you're covering or you wish wouldn't get short shrifted right now? Oh, wow. What a good question. Um, I think like the idea I'm I'm kind of working through, you know, the idea of to what extent is it necessary for that trade off between the labor market and inflation? Like, do we really have to kill the labor market to kill inflation? Or is there a world in which we can balance those two? Like, it just seems remarkably uncreative, I guess, but also depressing if the only way for us to get the economy to put the genie back in the bottle, as you say, is to just devastate workers. Like, I hate that. Surely we can come up with something a little bit better than that. Surely in all these years of economic research, we've come up with like a tool that is not just, well, why don't we make people more desperate? Why don't we hurt people's livelihood and make them unemployed and, you know, hard up and create massive job, you know, career scarring, which can be, you know, when you get laid off, it's it can be very hard to jump back in the labor market. Hopefully that's changing, but historically that has been true. So, you know, that trade-off is an interesting one. And I'm hopeful that maybe right in this moment, we suddenly discover that we are better than we thought we were at coming up with new solutions. Now, de jour de facto, is $15 now the de facto minimum wage, especially in service sector jobs? I was in a McDonald's drive-thru today, and they always are constantly hiring, you know, job fair, job day coming up. It is a pull and crazy to get people to show up for a McDonald's job. Anything that pays less than what I feel is like the market clearing rate now, mm-hmm. now of $15, even though that's well above the statutory right. state or federal minimum wage, that is something that I've had I've had store owners and restaurant owners tell me that there's no way, even if I pass down chunky price increases and menu mm-hmm. hikes, that I can afford to sustainably staff my venue at $15 an hour. I mean, I think that's right. And this is one of those interesting things. Um, this is, as you say, the actual minimum wage is far, far lower. It's, what, seven twenty-five, And that works almost nowhere in America as a wage. And I think, you know, you saw the federal government kind of not actually take a step that everyone thought they would take or, or hoped, I guess a lot of people hoped they would take in making that $15, you know, in, in boosting the actual minimum wage. But they did make it 15 for federal workers. And there's an interesting thing that happens where if you can get that job, that does filter through the economy where other shopkeepers and store owners and business owners are, you know, going to lose workers to whatever federal contracting job there is nearby that's $15 an hour. So it does, you know, the market is supposed to correct. Sometimes it lags, sometimes it doesn't respond properly, sometimes there's just enough workers that businesses don't have to respond, but it does seem in this tight labor market in this extremely demand-driven labor market where where workers have a bit more power, that that $15 responsiveness is there and businesses are having to say, okay, fine, fine, we're going to do 15, we're going to do 20. So I think that, you know, it's been, again, it's it's sort of a double, it, it has its downsides as well, where in the macro sense, you know, Jerome Powell doesn't love it because it's going to, wage inflation translates to, you know, can create problems for him. But on the worker side, that's phenomenal. That's curing a problem that was kind of, I don't know, entrenched in a way in the economy, it was really in there and hard to change. And we were looking to legislative cures and, and nothing was really, really working. And so finally, this hotter labor market seems to have lifted that. And, and I think with a little bit of a, a kick from the federal government. But is it still as grim as, you know, capital versus labor? It's one know, or the right? other. You can't have labor feeling healthy and you can't have high corporate profits. Is there a world? Is there an equilibrium where 
especially right now you're talking about consumers. You can't shoo them away from cruise ships or restaurants or hospitality. You see the headlines every day. Is there a better equilibrium where, say, you don't have to take advantage of people at 8 or 9 or $10 an hour, right. and then that goes into a, maybe an artificially low menu price or an artificially high right. retained earnings? I mean, I'm not trying or to promote this. artificially low Uber. Yeah. Yeah. So what is this is the kind of the big cosmic question. And the Federal Reserve maybe should be happy that there are wage gains finally after a prolonged period of of the stock market, say, well, you know, smoking, you know, real estate holders, stock market, capital asset holders smoking that. Is there a better trade off? Is there a sweeter point where it's not impossible to hire people for restaurants where you don't have, you know, 8% inflation every year, but corporate profits can still grow? I know. I don't know. Like, this is the fundamental question to me. And I it's something I'm thinking all the time about. And I don't have a good answer for you where it does seem like we're at some kind of inflection point where workers got fed up. Workers said they quiet quit. They actually quit the great resignation, the whatever you want to call it. We called it the great renegotiation. I think that you do see this shift in mentality, you know, and to some extent, this is boomers leaving. Gen Z has a very different view of the marketplace, of the labor market and what they're willing to accept and what they're willing to do. And I think that's healthy. You know, we came in, millennials came in in a financial crisis to a great extent. You know, I graduated in 2008 and was just like, oh, great. (laughs) We like looking at this financial devastation. Obviously, it was a rough job market. A lot of generations graduate into a recession and carry that scarcity mindset forward and are just grateful for the work, grateful for the job. I'll do anything. I'll work weekends. I'll work late. No problem. And Gen Z has come in in this oddball period, you know, kind of that gap where the market laws weren't kind of working and inflation was weirdly not relevant and things were nice, right? Things were a little bit nice in some respects. And we started to see those wage gains and we started to see some leverage on the worker side for the first time in at least my adult career and not my child career. Okay. And, <laughs> but like that, that I think is the impression you make of economic markets when you start, like that shapes how you act for your career, for your lifetime. And I think that gives me a little hope because if the preponderance of Gen Zers are like, no, I'm not going to do all that. If they retain that mentality, there's going to be more strength, more kind of durable gains in the labor market if they're able to hold the line on that. And that would regain some of that balance just from like a baseline subsistence standpoint. We would, you know, maybe be able to hold on to some of those worker gains without necessarily sacrificing the rest of the economy for it. I don't know. Maybe, Maybe I'm dreaming. Parallel headline here that home prices are finally falling after hitting an all-time high in 2022, but ownership is still out of reach for many Americans. The Atlanta Fed's housing affordability monitor, which compares median home prices and other housing costs with median household income, shows that housing affordability is worse today than during the peak of the 2008 housing bubble. As of December, the median American household would have to spend about 43% of its income to afford the median price house, Yikes. according to the index. And then that's talking about shedding a tear for your generation, the millennials. Yeah. We keep hearing that. How, how does it work like this? So you could theoretically, if you're the Fed, you could crash housing, but then you have to crash everything else. Mm-hmm. And then the money that people were saving, it's still going to be the people who had money on the sidelines, who had excess cash in their savings account and their money market funds, who could come by exactly. and and hit the hit the ask. Yes, it's not the people s- who were left on the sidelines. Right. And you see this. I mean, this is another I, I really like it when economic things get like 
manifested in the physical world. Like there's so much of what we do that's esoteric and abstract and like just an intellectual exercise. But housing is one, again, where it's just a, it's a house. It's physical. You go to it. I, I just feel like there are like, what, five houses in Richmond that are two bedroom? right? Maybe maybe six houses. Like you just can't find a starter home. And if you do, thousands of other couples show up and, and you know, potential home buyers, anybody shows up trying to buy that same house. Half of them have cash because they just moved here from Chicago and they've been saving for whatever. And like, good for them. I'm so happy for them. Love Chicago, whatever. But I just feel like the, you know, this is why people that are like, yes, in my backyard people or that get all about zoning, this is why they get like that, because we just there's a dearth of affordable homes in this country, in Richmond and in this country. And I think that that it's like trickle down economics, we think still works in housing where these McMansions, these enormous, you know, sometimes beautiful, sometimes less beautiful homes that are so expensive. You can find those. You can find plenty of those, but you can find way fewer buyers. So I don't know that that imbalance is really troubling, and especially in a country with, uh, I don't know, such a such an enormous problem with people that don't have homes at all and can't afford them at all, not rent, not mortgage like that. That seems to, to see the houses that are just, you know, gorgeous, enormous old houses sitting on laburnum or whatever, just falling into disrepair breaks my heart. So let's I don't know. Let's do better. <laughs> Mary, in the few minutes we have left with you, any predictions on work from home and see the other aftershocks? We're still talking, well, you know, three and a half years into this about the coring out of downtowns. I mean, again, yeah. shed a tear for the midtown Manhattan uh, seller of $19 chopped salads. I mean, we haven't <laughs> had that spirit here since 2015. Yeah. No, it's right. I mean, I went to Stony Point Fashion Mall the other day and I was shocked. I hadn't been there in years. And Every other store was empty. H&M left? Banana Republic? Like, I was just They really... actually lost the... I believe they lost the Starbucks and a Panera. I mean, there are some yeah. indicator species that are really closing. But I, I mean, at 3.5% unemployment, it's understood why people are reluctant to go back to the office. But if unemployment shoots higher, you kind of have the fear of God and you like, I better show up at the office again, maybe. I think that's right. And that's literally what some executives have said, that, you know, we just need a recession to kind of nudge these folks back into the office. That's exactly right. And I don't know. I mean, again, like I think a lot of people that I talk to, so this is anecdotal, you know, my friends, um, people that I talk to for stories, people that I read about in story, like a lot of people have changed that permanently have said, I'm not like I moved to Richmond, Virginia. My job was in New York. I don't see a world in which I go back to New York unless someone wants to pay me a million dollars. So which I don't think NPR is going to do, which is fine. Thank you, NPR. But like, I don't think that those compromises, some of them can be unmade. I think this was a structural shift. And yes, on the margins, yes, you know, there will be some you know, reverse backlash there where people will go back to the office at the, you know, under duress from management. But I think that there will still be that kind of core of people who are like, eh, no, thanks. I'm good. I'll just do this other thing. And that is a real, you know, there may just be a downshift, broadly speaking, in those midtown hustle and bustles. And you're seeing that start to show up in commercial real estate, where this could be a real problem for those office spaces that are empty, for those, you know, potential retail and, you know, all the places that are supposed to sell the $19 chopped salad, which I miss them so much. That is empty now. And so no one's paying rent there. No one's, you know, franchising a Chipotle or whatever. So you just 
that landlord's not getting rent, and then what happens? So you do Just eventually. Quickly, how see... do we know that's not systemic? How do we know that doesn't recourse back to the banking sector and become toxic it like could. housing was? I mean, it could. It's 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 been so slow, and the the provisions in the pandemic, actual 2020 era, helped to mitigate a lot of that. But I do think you're starting to see some of these, you know, potential defaults. You're starting to see some of these downgrades to building valuations. To people are just able to get less. And again, like we are grappling with this. Executives are trying so hard to force people back into the office, which would have a better outcome for a lot of these offices and for a lot of these, you know, the the kind of um, feeder fish and the the ecosystems that arise to support them, the service industry stuff. So it's in flux. It's in flux right now. And I think it'll be really interesting to watch. But I've not been bullish on commercial real estate for a while. Mary Childs, official friend of Full Disclosure. She's co-host and correspondent for NPR's Planet Money and author of the must-read book, The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It. Please, please, please come back on. I would love to, Robin. It would be my honor. Thank you. Thank you. Full Disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and recommend us, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. A shout out to our listeners on our home NPR member station, WVTF Radio IQ News across the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Message me to carry this show on your air. And don't forget to catch me on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Thank you.